Neuroscience Frontier, a podcast of the University of Oklahoma Graduate Neuroscience Program. Welcome to Neuroscience Frontier, the podcast of the OU Neuroscience Graduate Program. I am Dr. Zachary Smith, one of the co-directors of the OU Neuroscience Graduate Program, and I'm joined here today by Dr. David Sherry, my fellow co-director. We have the pleasure of being here today with our esteemed guest, Dr. Ian Dunn, the Chairman of the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine. We are lucky to have Dr. Dunn here today as he is an accomplished cranial neurosurgeon and a national thought leader in the field of brain tumor neurosurgery. Dr. Dunn has an exceptional biography, having trained at Harvard Medical School for his undergraduate in medical training, and then served as a staff neurosurgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, before coming to Oklahoma City. He also did a skull-based fellowship at the University of Arkansas with Dr. Osama Al-Mefti. Dr. Dunn has published more than 200 scientific and clinical manuscripts, and and he is our guest today here on Neuroscience Frontier. Good morning, Dr. Dunn, and thank you for being with us. We're excited to have you here today and want to learn more about the field of brain tumors. Can you tell us about how you became a neurosurgeon and a clinician scientist? What first got you interested in the field? That's a great, a great question, uh, Dr. Sherry. I'd be happy to give you a long answer to that. But, but in short, uh, I, I was always drawn to a field that involves service of, of some kind. And I grew up in a family that served in a different way, uh, served our country uh, in the military. And medicine is very much a form of that. Uh, you just do it on a, a person-to-person uh, level. And uh, once I was drawn to, to medicine, uh, most of us very quickly figure out we're either going to go to something that involves procedures or does not involve procedures. And uh, the ability to affect change immediately in, in patients uh, w- was very attractive to me. So very early knew I would be doing some sort of surgery. And I remember the moment in the class where I knew I'd be a neurosurgeon. And that was very specific. And this is going to sound very insignificant but it involved an anatomy class where I saw the third nerve, which is uh, a nerve that on each side of our, uh, we, have, we have two, a, a set of third nerves on the, on the left and, and the right, but it controls eye movements and our uh, pupil dilation. I saw the nerve comes out between these two vessels, blood vessels in the brainstem, and I thought it was so incredible, that, that uh, neuroanatomy. And after that, I got interested in neurosurgery. Uh, again, sounds like a very small, inciting event, but uh, that uh, devotion to microscopic neurosurgical anatomy uh, continued to fascinate me to this day and continues to uh, inspire me to do better and better in the operating room. And then neurosurgery is a, is a much more diverse field than I think uh, some people may understand. There are so many parts of what we can do uh, as neurosurgeons, and very broadly you can focus on conditions that involve the spinal cord or spinal column or peripheral nerves. You can deal with uh, disorders of, of the brain that involve blood vessels or brain tumors, which is my particular area of interest. And, you know, if, if you see enough of, of patients, you, 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 you come to understand that managing the problem is really only one part uh, of giving back and serving our patients. But studying how to improve how, how we care for our patients is, uh, is also a huge part of what, what we do. Dr. Dunn, we know that not all brain tumors are the same. What are the primary types of brain tumors? Well, that's a great question. I, I'd be happy to talk about that all, all day long. But, you know, when we see patients, uh, one of the things we very, very broadly tell them is when we see a new tumor on an MRI or a CT scan, 
the questions that are most important to our patients are, is this benign or cancer? And, and we, we hit that, and we actually, it's really important to use that word cancer because other, there are other words we use sometimes because you don't, we don't want to use that word, and we talk about aggressive or fast-moving, and, and sometimes patients don't really understand that. But broadly speaking, we bend them into, is it benign or is it cancerous or malignant? And is it a tumor that's arisen inside the brain, what we call a primary brain tumor, or a tumor that's traveled to the brain from another organ site? Uh, we, we, we would call those metastatic uh, tumors. Metastatic tumors are the most common brain tumors that we see. Uh, those also are tumors that probably receive the least amount of investigational focus from uh, neurosurgeons. And uh, when we think about pr primary brain tumors, so those that originate inside the skull, uh, Meningiomas are very common. Uh, those 99% of those are, are benign. Uh, those actually originate from the lining that surrounds the brain, uh, but can involve uh, the brain and skull and, and other elements. And then uh, there are another, other tumors called gliomas. Those are, uh, some of them are benign. Uh, they can also be the most aggressive or uh, malignant of the tumors that we see. Uh, the most extreme version of that is glioblastoma, and that gets quite a bit of attention and uh, has gotten uh, attention from um, uh, political figures or sports figures that, that have uh, have that diagnosis. And then there are other tumors called pituitary tumors that originate from uh, the pituitary gland. It sits really straight back from the, the bridge of our noses that uh, the pituitary controls a lot of basic sort of housekeeping functions in, in, uh, in the body, and tumors there are also not uncommon. Dr. Dunn, you mentioned a real large number of different types of tumors. Is the management and surgery for these tumors different? I, yes, absolutely. In fact, even within a certain type of tumor, let's say meningioma, um, where the tumor is located and what fundamentally the pathology of that tumor is once the tumor has been removed or managed uh, can lead to a, a radically different way to treat them Oh, a radically different way to consider how to deal with them and manage them after surgery. The way we would deal with some pituitary tumors, for instance, is very different than the way we would deal with a standard uh, non-pituitary tumor. 99% uh, of those we remove through the nose at this point. So that's very different from the remainder of the tumors that we discussed. Um, but but and, and, and even within pituitary tumors, some of, the, some of them need additional medical management, some of them don't. So. Uh, there's, uh, it, it's, it's like a pointillistic painting. The closer you look, uh, the more complicated it is. And uh, there's a never-ending set of decisions that we have to make in, in uh, giving the best care to our patients. What are the biggest challenges that meningioma patients face? I'd say the first one really is a, a huge psychological challenge, which is, and this really, uh, I think, goes for any patient that has been diagnosed with a brain tumor, is being told you have a brain tumor, it's one of these moments in life that is like the birth of a child or perhaps a significant relationship that you develop or, or another large event. It, it, it immediately changes the way that you view how you are today and what tomorrow looks like. So even though as neurosurgeons, we may look at a tumor and think it's benign, from the moment they're told they have a tumor to where that treatment begins is, uh, is really life-altering. So I'd say that's the first one. Uh, that we have to be very sensitive to, and, and the more I do this, the more sensitive I am to it. Um, and the second is, you know, what, where the tumor is, how it needs to be managed. Again, some meningiomas don't need to be managed at all, and that's, that's great. Uh, and, and we observe those, and we do a lot of reassurance. Uh, other tumors, uh, depending on the size, location, symptoms involved, uh, 
either can be managed through uh, radiation in some cases, but uh, many of them need to have surgery. And then, and so we have to navigate through that. And so those are significant challenges. Even if it's radiation, it's, it's quote unquote non-invasive, it's still treatment and it still has risks and, and so forth. And it still requires lifelong surveillance. And in surgery, there's obviously the, 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 the journey of getting through surgery and having it go well. What happens once the pathology returns begins another chapter for these patients. And it's either a very favorable pathology that is incredibly benign, uh, we'll follow with scans, that's it, or uh, it's not. And there are some gray area pathologies in meningioma that aren't technically cancer, but have up to 50% recurrence rates. And it really turns this tumor into kind of a chronic condition. And so that has an entirely different, even if the patients are doing well, a very different psychology that sets in because it, it's ne it never goes away. There's always a surveillance aspect to it. So, uh, you know, when we manage patients with meningioma, we try to be very optimistic and very positive, but also very realistic in, in helping uh, patients understand that we always have to keep an eye on this. So there's just, there's just this psychology that, that, that's part of that, that they, they didn't, was not a part of their or their family's lives before this came into the equation. Much of your own research explores the genomics of a type of brain tumor called a meningioma. Can you tell us more about these tumors, what the study of genomics entails, and how it impacts our understanding of brain tumors and their treatment? What's well, another great question, and uh, maybe I could start by talking a little bit about genomics more broadly and, and how it's beginning to affect the way we think about brain tumors. You know, I got interested in it uh, really during my residency, I took two years off studying neurosurgery and I departed from neurosurgery, still took a, did a little bit of clinical work and I embedded myself in a group called the RNA Interference Consortium. And it was an incredible high level group, uh, collaborative between Harvard and MIT, working on large scale tools to figure out how to, how to turn the expression of specific genes off. And it was just this, the study of not only how you understand the genome, that is the way genes are packaged, uh, but also how to manipulate uh, their expression. And I begin to learn the language of, uh, of the genome and, and its power in understanding uh, its impact on, on how we understand disease and how it relates to brain tumors. At the same time, my own surgical training involved training with some of the world's great neurosurgeons. And it was pretty humbling to see, in particular, uh, my fellowship mentor, a uh, gentleman named Dr. Al Mefti. I still consider the foremost surgeon scientist in the study of, of meningioma. His understand, no one will match his experience and technical ability with how to manage these patients, but also he has a really good understanding of, uh, of the science of meningioma. And, and, and if Dr. Al Mefti has patients whose tumors recur, th th then God help us. And so really we began to, I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty good at understanding how to attack uh, deep-seated areas and, and management in geoma right now. Uh, we're really good at understanding that there are radiation tools that can help manage tumors if they come back or if, if they're particularly aggressive. We have essentially no idea of how to do anything other than those two things when a meningioma is, is relentless. And uh, we began to understand, and I began to understand that part of that is limited by a, a real lack of understanding of, of actually what the target is, you know, what, what, what drives a meningioma, what constitutes a meningioma. So, uh, you know, that interest of, of mine coupled with the fact that the ability to study the genome and its architecture and how it's different in meningioma versus a, a normal cell in the body, that was becoming easier to do. And um, I think anybody in medicine is still driven by the great uh, story of chronic myelogenous leukemia 
where uh, over a period of about 40 to 50 years, great individuals saw that, you know what, there are these two genes that are fused in, and, and when they get fused together and they are glued together, they produce this ability of these cells to proliferate uh, uh, w without control. Uh, and, and actually, if we then develop a drug to stop that uh, from happening, we can cure and manage this disease. I mean, that, that's really the holy grail, the canon of, of, of understanding disease and then tr translating that for therapeutic uh, intent. So I think the first step uh, has really been to try and understand what in this most common brain tumor that we know very little about. And if you go to any meeting, it's, it's, it's still about how do we do this surgery and, and how do we do this radiation? Very little of it, even dating to 2014, 2015, is about what 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 is what is the target and what constitutes this target. So, uh, our group and others has been involved in in applying these large scale tools to just describe the architecture of meningioma. And uh, over the I'd say over the last six years, there's been an explosion of interest in in this tumor type um, and a realization that uh, the biology of the tumor. Uh, will drive outcomes. And what we historically have thought of as, as benign, uh, there may be underlying, uh, sort of in a tip of the iceberg concept, underlying genetic alterations even uh, for benign tumors that, that may predict uh, uh, a less favorable outcome or a more favorable outcome. So far, these uh, findings of, of specific genes or, or patterns of, of the genome that have been altered in meningiomas uh, have led to some interesting trials uh, that that are targeting some of these changes, but uh, I think we're at the very, very beginning uh, or the dawn of, of how to use more advanced information uh, to help our patients. Dr. Dunn, what are the most exciting things happening in brain tumor research right now? Do you think there's anything in particular that's a new advance that will change the field and, and what's being talked about at, at meetings as the next a part of brain tumor neuroscience that that'll really be uh, fundamentally changing for, for what we do. A great question. So I think um, there are always going to be advances in how we do surgery and apply advanced technology. So that constitutes quite a bit of what we discuss and what's uh, exciting in the field. Uh, using advanced microscopy to identify microscopic tumor cells under the microscope. Uh, using intraoperative imaging to guide resection, using neurophysiologic techniques to guide, understand the function of the brain while we're, we're operating and, and, and things of that nature. But I think what's really on the horizon now and being applied to some degree is, is as we talked a little bit about before, how an enhanced understanding of these tumors is gonna drive treatment. And, uh, and so what about before surgery? You get a diagnosis, you know, what's new about that? Uh, so there's always advances in imaging, but I think particularly the most exciting advance there is extracting biological information through advanced imaging. So in, in a way called, in a term called radiomics. So just like genomics is our understanding of, of the genome and how DNA is constructed and packaged and, and expressed or not expressed, uh, there uh, is, is a growing field of radiomics. So you get an MRI scan and really sophisticated uh, data sets with validation as Garvey sets are now able to pull out some biologic information from those scans. And so if you knew uh, that a specific tumor expressed a specific mutation, could you deal with that? Could, could a scan be a non-invasive biopsy and could that lead to a preoperative treatment, for instance? Um, 
Similarly, there are ways of, of diagnosing and following patients now that are not, not really routinely used, but, but, but close, that involve liquid biopsy, uh, which is a, uh, a catchy term for extracting tumor cells from the brain from the blood, just peripheral blood, uh, or DNA that the tumors shed into the peripheral blood. And, and again, uh, learning about either the tumor cells or, or, or what, what mutations or, or what targetable uh, alterations um, the tumor expresses without, without having done any surgery. Uh, and that's also could be a really compelling way to follow patients over time um, in, in the way that other cancers are followed through uh, blood tests for specific markers, uh, like ovarian cancer, things of that nature. This would be a, a different way of doing that, but also for, for, for brain tumors. Um, um, we talked a little bit about, again, how understanding tumors is driving driving the field, I, probably an explosion uh, of, of work has been done in understanding how, not just the tumor itself, but the tumor's interaction with what's around it. So not only micro, what we call microenvironment, but, but specifically the immune system. And so a lot of attention obviously being paid to, you just turn on the TV, you'll see an advertisement for Keytruda or, or some immune checkpoint inhibitor, but uh, we're, again, I think probably at the dawn of understanding how we can leverage prime uh, or uh, manipulate how the immune system can participate in, in attacking brain tumors. So I think those are really exciting uh, things that are being discussed in meetings. I think the other thing that is, is really understanding uh, quality of life measures uh, in, in patients with neurosurgical and neuroscientific disease and uh, probably supporting our patients in a better way. Basic neuroscience is a huge part of neurosurgery. What can neuroscience students learn from neurosurgery and vice versa? Well, I, I think in many ways, uh, neurosurgery and neuroscience are, are, are so linked to, together. Um, neurosurgical problems tend to be perturbances or disturbances of, of the central nervous and peripheral nervous system. And so as neurosurgeons, we really have to understand the normal state as we're handling the pathologic state. And who better to learn that from than our neuroscience colleagues uh, that we could always uh, become closer to and, and learn more from. And I think if I were a, a, a neuroscience student right now, understanding that uh, every neurosurgical problem is a disturbance of what I'm studying in some way uh, might, might be inspirational as we apply what we know and learn from the lab in basic neuroscience to understanding how we can help uh, and partner with neurosurgical colleagues to, to handle, manage, and treat uh, problems to which we don't have an answer at this point. Mentorship is a key component in training of neurosurgeons and neuroscientists. What should neurosurgery and neuroscience trainees look for in a mentor? Well, I think mentorship is a really hot topic in 2021 in, in all walks of life, uh, sports, business, medicine, science, everything that we do. Uh, as the world gets more complicated and we need some advice, uh, and it's particularly some of these early steps of our, uh, in our careers that we, that we take. Uh, I think there's some really uh, common themes that great mentors have, and one is, I, I think, a track record of, of having done mentoring. I think that's really important. So if you're approaching someone who does not have any significant record of dealing with students or uh, and so forth, that, that that's probably an area of, of, of concern. I think also uh, mentorship needs to be really intentional. So it's not just that you meet with a student and talk, it's that there's a, a lot should happen between meetings. So uh, the mentor should have time for the student uh, and there should be uh, 
an ability that that mentor should be e easy to contact and should be available uh, in some way. Not for daily meetings, perhaps that could be burdensome, but uh, electronically there should be uh, an avenue to reach out and, and discuss problems with a mentor. The mentor should be approachable, but there should be intentional activity that occurs between meetings and the mentor should help lay forth and set down some goals and should challenge the student. And I think that's a really critical part of, we don't grow without being challenged. So I think that that should be inherent to uh, how that mentor deals with students. I think on the flip side, I do think uh, mentors need to be motivated and inspired too. So if uh, I think it's a bi-directional responsibility for that student to carry out what has been agreed upon, uh, simple things like making meetings, uh, being accountable, responding to emails that the mentor sends. So it's it's a relationship, and mentorship is just a fancy. I think a mentor mentee it's a fancy term for a relationship, and so the same principles to any successful relationship apply uh, in, in a mentoring relationship. Dr. Dunn, can you describe to us how residents learn to be a neurosurgeon? How do they go from being a medical student to being an independent surgeon? I know it's a number of steps. I'd love to hear more about how they get through that training process. Another great question in this podcast. Um, so I, I think the first step is uh, before that process begins, I think there's a lot of responsibility on the programs, the residency programs that uh, bring medical students in just to make sure that it's a good fit. Uh, in any walk of life, I think people are going to do best when they're in the right environment. So is neurosurgery, hopefully we've gotten through the step where neurosurgery is right uh, for this particular medical student. And e even figuring that out could be hard because unlike, let's say, professional music where before a musician becomes a professional, he or she is still playing music just as they would as a professional or in athletics where you're, you're, you're Pop Warner football to high school football to NFL, it's still football. You're not actually doing neurosurgery a, a, as a medical student. So it's hard to totally get that gap between actually being a neurosurgeon and being a medical student who thinks it's interesting. So I think we're still, I think everybody's still figuring that what, what, what that, that matching looks like. But once you're in residency, uh, there's no question in my mind, and obviously I'm biased but through my own experiences that you have to be in an environment where uh, the resident, uh, which of course is somebody who's graduate of medical school, who's now in that long training program to be a neurosurgeon, is in an environment where that their education really matters. And yes, they're doing a lot of work for patients and for the surgeons who with whom they're working, and that that can be there's a service component. But the faculty that are advising and training the resident, they have to be very committed uh, from the chair all the way on down to the maturation, the wellness, and the learning period for, uh, of, of, the, of the resident. And it needs to be structured, it needs to be bi-directional, there need to be periodic and frequent check-ins, uh, making sure those residents are on track. Just as, again, I don't think neurosurgery is any different than any other highly, highly competitive, difficult field that we in, in life. There needs to be, it's, it's a structured process of growth uh, that has to be charted by the faculty who really care about the residents, really care about their education, um, and uh, of course uh, the residents need to believe in that. And and so part of it is a lot. A lot of the responsibility is on the faculty to help create an environment uh, where the resident believes that all this hard work is going to lead to something. Uh, they need to be encouraged, motivated, uh, and I think these traditional notions of discipline in medicine. Are fading away and that's probably a good thing uh, those are things I experienced with with 
you know, punitive comments and, and uh, punitive uh, uh, corrective measures and things like that. We all experience that. Um, I, I think, it, frankly, uh, I think I, I learned how that could be positive for me, but I don't think that that's a generational uh, trait that needs to continue. And so how do we discipline uh, and, and, but but still keep that positive. But well, I think parents might ask the same question. But um, but, but I think what's critical as, as a med student goes through this portal to then become a neurosurgeon on the other side is, is that 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 experience has been shaped by faculty who really care about their development and finding that program uh, is critical. And, and and the reputation of an institutional name is not totally correlative with that concept. So. Your, your fanciest uh, hospital name may not be associated with a residency program that cares the most about the resident. And uh, I think what's exciting about here at OU is that we're not the biggest, but I think we have a chance to be an excellent, excellent residency program where people will really look back uh, and, and see how much they got out of the seven years here. I'm gonna shift gears a bit to a little bit more personal note. Some people may not know that you grew up in Missouri and then you mentioned earlier you spent time in Boston and also Arkansas. What brought you to Oklahoma City? How have you liked being here? Well, you know, there, there are always mysterious parts to our lives that we uh, we don't reveal uh, all, all at once. But yeah, I did grow up in Missouri. Um, if I really was from Missouri, I'd probably call it Missouri. Uh, so I'm instantly identified as sort of a transplant to Missouri. I'm actually from England originally. Uh, my family was stationed there in, in the military and we uh, made a stop in Virginia uh, for a few years before uh, my father was stationed uh, in central Missouri. And that's where really I grew up. Uh, I went to high school uh, there. And uh, so we, we follow the religiously. Uh, now, it's in a different conference. So I think it's okay to say this on this podcast. But if I have to watch an SEC game, I will follow the Mizzou Tigers. Of course, everything else is, is OU uh, and, and the Sooners. Um, after uh, high school, I, I went to uh, undergraduate and medical school and residency in, in Boston. And so, um, and then from there, uh, pursued a skull base fellowship in, in Arkansas. And it was very funny. I never forget uh, my graduation evening in Boston. And of course, Boston and, and, and Little Rock don't often go in the same sentence. But uh, I really, just as I did in, in my training in, in in a period of my residency where I, where I went to the lab, I, I, I sought the best experience for me regardless of, of what other people thought of it. And so I was the first neurosurgeon to pursue uh, scientific training or postdoctoral training in, in this genomics uh, center. Likewise, when I became very interested in tumors that are at the base of the skull that are hard to access, I really wanted to find the very best surgeon that, that had a great reputation for turning out fellows uh, and being a great mentor. And so that took me to uh, Osama El Mefti in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. But it wasn't just him there, it was also, uh, pro well, he was awarded the neurosurgeon of the century in the 20th century, uh, the latter half. Uh, there was also a wonderful, one of the most famous neurosurgeons we've ever had in the field, uh, neurosurgeon there named uh, uh, Professor Yazrigil. And, and any neurosurgeon, it's like not knowing who Babe Ruth is if you're a baseball player. It just doesn't happen. Everybody knows who Yazergill is. And so I got to watch and learn from these two surgeons in, in Little Rock. And, but but th when I was leaving Boston to go to Little Rock, I remember there was a, uh, one of my faculty members in Boston said, I, I don't know why you're going to go to Little Rock. I mean, I, I don't know what you're going to learn there. And I've never, it's one of those things, you know, it's an innocent statement. He really didn't mean anything by it. 
but I've often thought about that because what I learned in Little Rock w was, was it, it's like my hard drive was erased and, and then a new software uh, package installed. I mean, I really saw how to do cranial nerve surgery uh, at an incredible level that I don't think was going on anywhere else in the world. It was such a high level. And, and I did uh, have some excellent surgical mentors in Boston, but um, the way these specific tumors were being done, w w I've c carried the lessons forward in my practice every single day. I enjoyed uh, that experience in Arkansas so much that, uh, and I went back to Boston after that for eight years. But what, what I liked about Little Rock is a lot about what I like about OU, but I like OU, uh, more about OU that I'll get to in a minute, if we have time. Uh, Arkansas, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences is the sole academic training program for the state. And geographically, it's located in the center of the state uh, at the confluence of a number of highways. Uh, they are looked upon by the whole state to, to be the beacon and the flagship bearers of healthcare for the, for the state. And I loved that, even as a fellow, I, I did take some, I was a faculty member as a fellow, but I loved that responsibility that you feel in the state-based institution. And there's also an area, there's also a need there. So if you look at, at the healthcare rankings, you know, Oklahoma, Arkansas, they're pretty close to each other, kind of at the bottom of, of, of how healthcare, how healthy uh, uh, the population is and, and so forth. So I think there's a tremendous need. But I also love the campus. Uh, uh, you had the medical school, hospital, children's hospital, not far away, VA, Cancer Institute, all co-located. And I really enjoyed my time there uh, very, very much. And I was very fortunate to then go back to Boston for eight years. And actually, my fellowship mentor came back to Boston with me. And so I really got almost an eight-year, eight, nine-year fellowship uh, with him. As, uh, as uh, you know, I really don't think I'll ever approach the level of, of surgical excellence that, that Dr. Almefty has. But you can always reach for that. And so when this... Uh, when I was in my early 40s, uh, just turned 40 actually, I began to understand that I wanted to lead a group. And so a uh, very open discussion with my chair at the time about doing that. And when this Oklahoma opportunity, I, I never forget it, I was in my office late one night, he walked by my office and said, uh, University of Oklahoma is open for a chair, uh, you know, do you want me to put your name in? And he, and he walked by, I think assuming that I would say no. But I actually followed him out and I said, yeah, it's interesting, you know, I, I, yeah, why don't you put my name in for that? And I got the first call for this job in February 2018 uh, from Gail Ruffin, who sits in the dean's office, who is just a wonderful person, and uh, interviewed here, uh, and, and then really spent the, the rest of the cycle trying to convince uh, OU to offer me a job. <laughs> and uh, so what, what, what I loved about the opportunity was very much what I was, had experienced in Little Rock, but actually more so. So what's even better about this environment is that I think the proximity of the undergrad campus to the Health Sciences Center is incredibly powerful. Uh, and I think we're probably just at the beginning of understanding how we can collaborate even further with tremendous neuroscientists and engineers and, and biologists at the, in the Norman campus. And I think that, that proximity is also really fun. Uh, awesome sport, it's a great sports culture. There's a lot of great cultural events and it's a great culture that we can, uh, that we can be uh, a party to uh, being so close to Norman. Um, and, and I've been here for just over two years now, and what I saw in the position before I got here is really what I found. We've grown the group tremendously, we've added incredible people, and our success really is, is no different than how you would succeed in any walk of life. If you find the right people, uh, they will drive the success of the group. And we, our, our families loved Oklahoma, and so why I love OU, it's very collaborative. Uh, just like I talked about with Arkansas, we are looked at, uh, I think, still as the, the flagship 
academic health system. And so how to fulfill that responsibility is, is all of our charges. And that uh, uh, makes being in this job uh, a lot of fun. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you might like to add? Well, I really appreciate the time to, uh, to spend with you uh, today. I, I would add that, uh, you know, to Dr. Smith and Dr. Sherry, uh, I've really been impressed at watching the reconfiguration and reanimation of the neuroscience graduate program uh, in concert with uh, the graduate school. And, and it's been very exciting to watch practitioners and professionals in neurology and neurosurgery pharmacology, cell biology, pathology, want to make sure I don't miss any here, microbiology and immunology, biochemistry, physiology, and ophthalmology, and, and others uh, really begin to nucleate interest around studying the nervous system, uh, peripheral and central. And we're hoping, uh, selfishly, obviously I'm biased uh, because I'm in neurosurgery, that uh, understanding and being closer to neurosurgery and seeing how disturbances of the nervous system uh, can be attacked with an understanding of, of the center, of the neuro, neuroscience and the nervous system uh, will be inspirational to students. And I think it's a really exciting time to be a graduate student uh, studying neuroscience uh, on a campus that has uh, an incredible interest in that. Well, Dr. Dunn, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been our pleasure to have you as our first guest on Neuroscience Frontier, the podcast of OU Graduate Neuroscience. If you're interested in learning more about neuroscience and neurosurgery here at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, you can find more information at the Neurosurgery and Neuroscience webpage at medicine.ouhsc.edu.